Hi everyone, welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast, you're back in the Cranog. Today we have Mila, Graham, David and me, um, I'm Rebecca. Um, and we're going to be just having a wee chat about some of our favourite Scottish folktales. So there once was a well-loved layer to held an annual Cayley, where there would be singing, dancing and prizes for a number of competitions. There were rumours that he dabbled in a bit of witchcraft, but it was only ever for good, so the people, they just let it slide. It was getting towards the end of that evening's festivities, and though we have noticed that his shy cattleman, Sandy, still hadn't taken part in any competitions. Well, that just wouldn't do. Everybody was supposed to get stuck in. So the last prize was a gold coin for telling the biggest, the wildest, the most ridiculous lie. But poor Sandy, he was a, a quiet, serious man though, so try as he might, he just couldn't think of anything. The laird looked at Sandy, just a hint of a twinkle in his eye and told him, if you're not going to take part, you can go outside and clean the boat. So with a big sigh, Sandy trudged outside towards the wee vessel and as soon as he stepped inside it, it shot off across the water. Now on its own, as if it knew where it was going, it sped off around islands and through channels, going left and right, all the while Sandy's clinging on for dear life. Eventually, came to rest on an unfamiliar shore. Now if Sandy was confused at the enchanted boat, he was even more confused when he looked down and he found himself wearing delicate shoes, and stockings and a fancy green dress. To make things worse, but a rough farm worker caught a glimpse of his reflection in the water. He was now a beautiful lady with long golden hair. And Sandy's head, well, he was reeling with how any of this was possible. He was panicking at the edge of the water when he was approached by a handsome young man who asked where this beautiful maiden had come from. Well, he couldn't very well say that he was Sandy the cattle man he just arrived on a magic boat, so he just pretended he'd lost his memory. And then he just went along with a young man to his mother's house to recover. Well, Sandy eventually adapted to his new life. Over time, the, the pair, they fell in love. They were married. even had two wonderful children. Now, one day, Sandy was out walking when he recognised the wee boat that he'd arrived in. Oh, it had been years, so, you know, the wee thing was looking overgrown and dirty. And, you know, just for old time's sake... Sandy stepped inside to clean it. Immediately, the boat is sped off again, back the way it had come. Sandy begged it to stop, and he cried and he wailed that he wanted to go back to his bairns, but it was no good. The boat, well, when it landed at the Laird's Hall, Sandy looked down and instead of that dress, he saw his old trues with the holes in, his dirty old boots. So with tears streaming down his face, he ran back up. Laird was waiting outside. Sandy sobbed through his whole story to the man he thought he hadn't seen him in years, but in reality, the cattleman had only been gone for ten minutes. And with a laugh, the Laird cried, well, Sandy, you've won that gold coin because that's easily the biggest lie that any of us have heard tonight. What a progressive little story. I like it because, you know, it's, it's like a fun wee story. And actually, see, when you start to think about it, it's tragic. This, this poor guy, he's found this happiness in this world he never would have thought of. And then, 
all of a sudden it's just taken away and he's back to his old. Where did you learn that one, Graham? It's in a book. I've got somewhere, one of these hundreds of books. But I do, I do wonder whether Sandy then went on with his life and realised, actually, that's, that's the way he wants to live. Who knows if that was his story the second year round. Maybe it was telling him that it was all the truth. He got this gold coin second time round. And that's where the actual story came from. You never... <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you imagine, like, you'd been through all that. You'd, like, developed this little family. Um, you know, you were very happy. You were in love. You had these kids. And then you got, like, whisked away. And then you start crying when you see the people from your old life and you're telling them about what happened and you're traumatised and they're like, ha ha ha, good one. <laughs> Maybe, um, it's, it just reminds me of Narnia. Like the kids that go through Narnia, they go through the wardrobe, they live this whole life and then as old people, they go back through and that's it, they're back to being kids again like it never happened. Yeah, but quite handy though because you'd get several lives out of it. So, you know. Yeah, but you'd have to live them like longing for what you had. Yeah. Is that what you want? I don't know. It depends how much fun he had the next time round. We want Sandy Part 2 to see how he, how he got on as a farmer. I know. I wonder if he ever tried to go back. Whether he ever managed to get back to his bairns. To... He's just sitting on the boat the whole time. Yeah, waiting for it to <laughs> propel itself. Every spare minute he had, he's just rocking back and forth in his boat trying to get it to go again. That's Sandy. He got sent out to wash the boat and he's never been the same since. <laughs> Maybe it became a whole thing in the village. Like, if any of the kids were being naughty, like, we'll send you to wash the boat, it'll be a whole... <laughs> the poor guy was just an intro- introvert. Didn't mm-hmm. want to be involved in any of this. Exactly. Just wanted to sit in the corner and watch. The worm of Linton, while unsurprisingly being from Linton, was not what you'd typically think of as a worm. That's unless your garden is packed with ten-foot-long fan creatures capable of devouring a flock of sheep. While legends represent it differently, some saying at one point it sprouted wings, whilst others say it could breathe fire, they all agreed that it was a formidable monster that no normal man could face and survive. That was until John Somerville decided to face it down. Now, it's disputed in legend as to whether John Somerville was indeed the man who'd fought the Linton Worm, or whether it was instead a man called William Somerville, who's believed to in actual fact have been the first Baron of Linton, rather than the mythical John Somerville. But we'll come on to that a bit later on. But for now, I'm just going to call him Somerville, to avoid any possible dilemma or controversy. Where did reach Somerville, a man who, while not overly rich or renowned, was of a growing class of brave and honourable man, with some local stature? In a bid to benefit both the locals and increase his rank, he went off to investigate the rumour of the great monster that lurked on Linton Hill on the outskirts of the village of Jedburgh. When he arrived at the village, he witnessed a scene as though some strange magic had made every villager disappear. The village did not look ransacked, it merely looked empty. Still, the stillness was eerie, until he heard a clank at the far edge of the village. He rode off in search of the sound and arrived at the village smithy. Good sir, I wonder if I might trouble you for a brief moment, asked Somerville. Fire on, not got much else to be getting on with. Business is up sticks and left, and if that dumb worm ain't gone soon, I'm going to have to follow them. 
Been here all my life. My dad was Smith before me, his dad before him. Well, it's just that I came to ask about the worm. Where is the beast? I've heard so much about it. Do you have any decent information on it? From what I have heard, it's something between 10 and 100 feet long. And may or may not fly and breathe fire. The blacksmith chuckled. Sounds like the locals getting themselves a bit carried away there. I, can, I can't say for sure as I'm not stupid enough to go look at myself, but from what Sam the farmer's boy said to me, it seemed like it was about 10 foot long. Wide enough to get a U down its throat and had razor sharp fangs. Didn't hear nothing about no wings or fire though, but could be wrong. Well, sounds like I better go and scout it out for myself, replied Somerville. You're a braver or stupider man than me then. It's just on the northeast of yonder hill, though it's said to have been venturing into the surrounding countryside. Best time to have a look is said to be at sunset as it descends down into its lair. Thank you. It looks as though the sun may be going down now. I'll ride out immediately and I might catch a glimpse of the monster. Somerville mounted his horse and rode out in search of the beast. Upon arriving at what Somerville took to be the lair of the beast, he dismounted and slowly approached it with his torch lit. Then, as though a secret force had stuck him to the ground while he was walking, he froze. All was quiet for a moment, and then came an almighty snarl as a great creature lunged out of the cave in the hillside, stopping but a few feet from Somerville. Somerville couldn't quite gauge the length of the beast, its, its tail remained in its lair, but he guessed it must have been at least the ten foot the blacksmith said. The creature glared open-mouthed at Somerville, its dark, pooling eyes fixated on him, and its long, serpent-like tongue hissing between its long, razor-sharp fangs. At least as long as a man's middle finger. Somerville, with the light now but a flicker on the horizon, and his torch quickly becoming the only source of illumination, thought to retreat as quickly as possible. He gave a last glance over the, to the creature and caught what he believed to be protrusions from the side of the beast, although he couldn't be sure if it was just a trick of the light. What he was sure of, though, was that this creature was indeed some sort of wavering, it couldn't fly unless guided by a magical force. Somerville edged away from the beast slowly, keeping his eyes fixed on it. But as he took another step back, he stumbled over a small rock jutting from the earth below, and the creature pounced. Somerville's years of fighting instincts kicked in and he swung his torch at the beast, and it recoiled as though bitten and released a piercing shriek. At that, Somerville seized his opportunity and ran to his horse and rode for the village. Upon reaching the village, he rode up to the smithy and shouted for the man's aid. The blacksmith, clearly about ready for bed, looked less than pleased at seeing the shaken man. A small grin crossed his face though as he crossed his arms and said, Ah, so you've met our creature then. Take it you got a good look at him by how riled you are. Oh yes, quite, quite a good look. And I would like you to make me a modified lance at your earliest convenience, replied Somerville while quickly regaining his calm composure. Whatever you wanting that for? questioned the blacksmith. Why, I mean to slay the beast, of course, stated Somerville. Without saying another word, the blacksmith gave a disbelieving glance before facing his forge. What are you after, then? 
I would like a lance with a wheel about a, put, a foot from the point. The blacksmith grunted and walked into his smithy, only glancing back briefly to say, Come back at first light and it'll be done. While it's lost to time exactly how the contraption Somerville asked for worked, some say the point moved on a wheel like a pivot with burning peat attached, while others say the wheel moved like a Catherine wheel attached to the lance. Whatever the actual design, it involves fire and sharpened iron. The sun began to rise and the first cockerel crowed, raising Somerville from his monster-ridden dreams in a hay barn. Shaken off the dreams of the night, he mounted his noble steed and headed off to see the blacksmith. Morning, sir, your lance is promised, said the blacksmith, proudly presenting the unusual weapon. Somerville inspected the lance, spun the wheel and checked its point. Perfect, he stated after a careful assessment. He paid the blacksmith generously before heading out in hunt of peat and pitch to complete his contraption. He quickly found and liberated both from the deserted village, leaving a couple of small coins in their place. For the rest of the day, he rode back and forth in a local field, brandishing his flaming lance, fueled through pitch-doused peat, ensuring a long-burning hot flame. Unfortunately, it also had the effect of being a very smoky affair, and so he sought to ready his horse for its use in battle with the beast. The day drew on and gradually the horse started to keep its course, stay at pace and remain calm. His noble steed had always been a strong and quick to learn horse and it had been remarked on several occasions that such an animal surely belonged to a man above his station. By the end of the day as the sun was setting he decided he was ready and so he set off for Linton Hill to face off the creature at its lair. As he rode out of the village the blacksmith gave him a wave and whispered under his breath. God protect this madman. He means well. Fully expecting never to see Somerville again. Somerville arrived at the lair with a vivid red sky above as the sun began to dip away below the horizon. He began banging on his armour, beckoning the creature to appear from its lair. He then lit his lance and something about the smoke and noise drew the creature out. This time it was more pensive. It slithered around Somerville looking for a weak spot to pounce. At that Somerville rode away a small distance as though retreating. Then as quickly as he left he turned around and rode back at full speed with his lance down. And just like that he burrowed the fire spinning lance deep inside the maw of the beast. The beast made the most awful shriek and began to enter the most dramatic death throes. Yanking the lance from Somerville's hand. But it was too late for the beast been struck a mortal blow, and as it thrust to and fro, convulsing on the hillside, the earth began to give way, and it plunged through the ground deep into the cavern below. Never to be seen again. Somerville glanced down as he saw the last flickers of his lance disappear into darkness along with the creature who had now found a tomb in its former home. Somerville rode back to the village victoriously, and before the next day was out, the villagers had returned from the surrounding towns and villages, and Jebra was once again thriving. Within a week, word had reached the new king, William the Lion, and Somerville was named the Royal Falconer, and the first Baron of Linton for his bravery in defeating the worm. That's the story of the rather unusual worm that once blighted the village of Jebra, which can thank its existence today to the brave actions of Mr. Somerville. And there's the story of the Linton Worm. It was epic.
What I liked about that story, like one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was that it is one of the few pieces of very dramatic, um, dragony, wavery piece of folklore that actually does seem to have some sort of historical context in that the first Baron of, Will uh, of Linton was a William Somerville. So although the story was about John, they think it was probably about this William. And there is a an, an old poem at the time saying about this William Somerville uh, and how he had defeated this dragon. And if you uh, check the role, the... Um, the role of heraldry there's the reasons underneath why each house was given its honors or in this case the barony and the reason was for defeating this waver and this worm uh, for why they were granted their barony so there so there must have been some sort of creature that he'd slayed or, or unless they were being very metaphorical for the time so <laughs> have you ever been to linton no i've not been there no there's carved stone above the um of the doorway which is a guy slaying a dragon well it, it, it could be and it, it you know it, it's old they say you know it, it could be contemporary with the story and genuinely made um it's, it's really interesting it's a great wee place might have to go down and have a look yeah definitely. because i've always wondered what the lance did look like because it described it as a a lance with a wheel one foot from the point with pete on the top but some of them had it more like a Catherine wheel, so it was just spinning around with a point, and other ones had it the, like the point angled at the right point to go into. So I wasn't sure what it actually looked like. I was just giggling there. It really reminded me of um, the Jabberwocky, the poem by Lewis Carroll. Just I'm probably just down to the fact that it's like big scaly monster plus outrageous hero who decides to go slay it plus um, fun weapon. <laughs> which would be the Vorpal Sword. So I was just googling to see if there was any like correlation, but I'm not sure if there is. Really cool story though. Like I've never, I've never heard of one in folklore that's so like obviously we've got like things like Nessie and people will do little sculptures and stuff, but there's not been one that's like above doorways and stuff. That's kind of it makes it more real <laughs> if yeah. it's embedded in. A lot more than just artwork like it's embedded in architecture i feel that's a bit it brings it to life a bit more yeah and apparently in the uh the peerage of scotland it states that it was william de somerville who made a great figure at the courts of king malcolm the fourth and william the lion who obtained from william the lion a grant of the lands of barony of linton in roxburgh and then below it states for killing as is said a monstrous serpent that greatly infested the neighborhood so, wow. There you yeah. go. It was quite interesting that they, they had to actually put that within the contemporary reference of the time, and that was 1174, so a fair while back. But yeah, they, apparently it is debated in the house whether it was the, in the, not in the house, in the family whether it was a John or a William, because they're not sure where this name of John ever came from in the folk stories, um, because they haven't been able to find one. But they, they said there was a, a poem by the Mad or Wode Willie Somerville, who was the first Baron of Ach of Linton, and it was him that had been granted it for killing the the monstrous serpent. I love like that they also the one of the people from the family of Somerville who had commented when I'd written the story a few years back as well had included like a wee poem that is known locally and one of the older poems that was to do with a William uh, Somerville that had killed it, and it was. Wode Willie Somerville killed the wood worm of Wormerdale, for Wilk he had all the lands of Lintern and six miles then about. And I, I love that, and quite a lot of fun poems, they just added an unnecessary 
line at the end that doesn't rhyme in any way at all <laughs> of just and six males there about like that's... it's it's nice to have the story but we gotta have the accuracy as well, well that's from the, the mcgonagall <laughs> school of poetry yeah it, just, it is, is. <laughs> i really like that clearly someone killed a big adder and they were like oh my god, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. We're going to write a whole ballad about it and we're going to really, really exaggerate it. I think when I first heard this story and I went looking at stuff, I read some article about someone like going through all the different animals it could have been and like how realistic it would be to be like a Komodo dragon or a big thing. And they were like, it's a crocodile. It's definitely a crocodile. Yeah, because it was what, 1174, so it would potentially the crocodiles could have been brought back and we know that they like their exotic animals to be brought back from places so like in whenever it was not like in very recent history when loads of people had like jaguars and things as exotic pets and they're like if you're going to keep that you need a zoo license so they're like i ah, will just let it go and that's why like fife is full of stories of like huge black cats roaming the woods and they're like yeah it's because people just let them loose when they were like well you actually can't keep that in your house. Makes me think, though, like the thing you're saying about the crocodile. Like back then, people would have also like the average height of a person was a lot smaller. So could you imagine how much bigger this beast would have looked? Yeah, it'd be like you seeing things that you're yeah height. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can guarantee everything is very big and scary from down here. <laughs> have you seen the size of spiders, tarantulas roaming around Dundee? Yeah. That's that's what's up. Tonight's theme of favourite Scottish folk tales immediately made me think of the Loch Ness Monster, our beloved Nessie. Uh, mostly because when I was a kid, um, it was when I moved to Scotland, and it was something my relatives kind of jokingly prod at me, being like, oh, don't go off to Scotland, you'll get eaten by Nessie. Of course, for all for jokes. I mean, for all we know, Nessie could be a vegetarian, so no danger. <laughs> also, being in Dundee, definitely no danger. Um, but... Since we'd already chatted about Nessie on a previous episode of the Cranog, I thought I'd cover a slightly different story. I wanted to stick with the water theme, but substitute Nessie out for something else that is also very Scottish, and that is bagpipes. So the story that caught my eye is about the Ghost Piper of Clanyard Bay, which is located on the west side of Scotland, down by the borders. It's a very picturesque stretch of coastline and great for long walks, and that is if you're not too easily spooked. It's said that you can often hear the ghostly sound of bagpipes along the beach, all the way up to the cove of Grenon Caves, but with no piper in sight. The caves were said to be inhabited by fairies and other mystical creatures who made the area home after the tunnels were abandoned by the smugglers who used the underground system to stash away a range of goods and valuables. Although the locals left out food offerings for the fairies, the common consensus was that the fairies were to be feared, so no one dared to go into the caves, even for the treasure, and people generally avoided the area, especially at night, when the fairies were said to come out. However, one day, a brave piper decided to do some investigating, and offered to go into the caves. He was the finest piper around, playing so beautifully that it always brought the town together, because people wanted to hear him play. So he felt he would be the right person to make a truce with the fairies. Everyone gathered to see him off, and as he started playing his bagpipes, he began the long walk through the caves, accompanied by his dog. The melodies could be heard for hours until slowly they started fading into the distance. Some time passed and no one could see or hear anything coming from the caves until the piper's dog suddenly ran out, barking and howling. Much to the horror of the onlookers, the poor dog was absolutely terrified and was also missing all of its hair. 
Underground, the fairies could be heard screeching, presumably at the piper, who was never seen again. For when he made it to the centre of the cave, he met with the fairies, and they were so enraged that he had disturbed their peace that, he, that they ordered him to leave immediately. But when he declined, they decided to flee, but not before creating an underground labyrinth to trap the piper and ensure he never got out. This also kept the locals away in fear they would meet the same fate, and so the piper and the treasure remained underground. Fast forward to present day, and the caves and tunnels have now unfortunately collapsed, but bypassers have still reported hearing the faded sounds of bagpipes coming from beneath their feet, where the tunnels once were. Some people say it's the wind making its way through the ruins and the rubble, but perhaps it's the spirit of the piper going for a walk through the caves for a few miles with his bagpipes, playing his melodies for all to enjoy. Creepy story! Well, you know, don't mess with the fairies in their caves. <laughs> to be fair okay. to them, I'm kind of siding with the fairies on this one. Like, they're just minding their own business and some bloke comes into an echoey tunnel blasting bagpipes. Like, could you really blame them? <laughs> you know, I feel like I would trap them in an eternal labyrinth as well. If it... <laughs> well, I suppose it's like the... Uh... The old equivalent of. Uh oh. Oh no, we've lost Graham. Oh, no. It's oh, the old no. equivalent of not having Wi Fi. Graham, come back. <laughs> I'm just, I've asked Graham if he wants to pass a message over Messenger over about. <laughs> what does he say? It's the old equivalent of Wee Neds blaring music out their phones as they walk around the street. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it just. I think some of the pipers back in the day were just like wee neds. They just yeah, I bet they were. Yeah, there's so many stories about like ghostly pipers in Scotland. It makes me wonder about like. So I used to live near the Invercars Hotel, and whenever they had a wedding on, you would just hear the faint sound of bagpipes on the wind, or like honestly anywhere you go in Scotland, if there's someone playing bag- bagpipes, you'll hear it for miles around. So you just hear, like, you, you'll hear it from somewhere. Like, there's a flat down the road where someone practices bagpipes and you walk past it and you'll just hear the bagpipes somewhere. You don't know where it's coming from. So I wonder if that's just where all these stories about ghostly bagpipers have come from. There's, like, bagpipes a couple of miles away and someone's heard it and they've been like, where's that coming from? Must be a ghost. Or they've decided these bagpipers who keep disturbing everybody's peace have been cursed to eternal damnation to walk this world until they've repented for their sin. Are we saying that are we saying that ghostly bagpipe stories are actually just a warning against using bagpipes? At inappropriate times. <laughs> at any time other than weddings or major events of state. See, I refute that because I really like bagpipes, but maybe I'm in the minority. I like them in the right setting. I like them when they're far away. so we've already covered quite a few of my favorite stories on other episodes of the podcast um but one that we've not done yet is the story of Lilikin and kentigern and unsurprisingly if you know anything about me i'm obsessed with everything to do with king arthur and merlin um this is tied to Arthurian tradition. This is basically Scottish Merlin. So, um, St. Kentigern is otherwise known as St. Mungo. Um, you might have know him as the patron saint of Glasgow. And there's a 15th century story that tells a tale of how he met the mad prophet Lelikin, who lived in the Caledonian forest. 
So Lelikin is widely believed to be an early source for uh, Merlin in the Arthurian legends. There's a very similar figure in Welsh tradition who was a poet and a seer who also lived in a forest and was known as a quote-unquote madman. Um, and I apologise for the potential mispronunciation of this, but his name was Merthyn Wicht, um, and he was the predecessor to Merlin the Wizard. Um, his name means Merthyn the Wild, but he also has other names like Merthyn Emrys, which means Ambrosius, um, or Merlinus Caledonesis, which means Merlin of Caledonia, or Merlin Silvestris, which is Merlin of the Woods. There are several really good poems written from his perspective that describe how he communes with wild animals, he predicts the future, and he hides from the outside world. He, Merthyn is obviously a Welsh source, um, but this is all things that Lelikin is also known for. Um, and the reason that this figure hides, that the Welsh figure hides, is because he holds responsibility for the deaths um, that were caused at, and I, again, apologies for the mispronunciation, um, at the Battle of Ardered, um, of which he was on the opposing side. So our Lelikin is believed to be the Scottish version of this Merlin figure, and we can see from his names, one of them being Merlin of Caledonia, um, so the two of them are clearly linked in some way. So I'm now going to read the story which has been adapted from the 15th century story of Lelikin and Kentigern. One day, as St Kentigern was walking in the wilderness, he happened upon a naked, hairy man. Kentigern, confused by the wild-looking creature, stopped and said to him, in God's name, who are you and why do you dwell here, in this deep and lonely wood? The wild man took his time to form the words, for he had spent so long with only beast and bird for companionship. Once I was a good Christian man, he spoke at last, though now I am condemned to the wild, so great is my sin. Kentigern, a pious man, gaped at the wild man. Whatever could you have done to earn such a punishment? I was the cause of a great battle in this land, one that felled many a good man. As I watched the battle unfold, I tore my hair with grief as the skies above me split and a thunderous voice called to me. It said, Lelikin, you alone are responsible for the deaths of these men, and as recompense at your death you will descend into hell, and until that day comes you shall live among the wild things. Kentigern had no chance to inquire what the wild man could possibly have done to cause such a terrible event, for when he finished his tale of woe, he took off into the vast woodland, and Kentigern was left alone, a prayer for the sorry man on his lips. Several weeks passed, and the woodland encounter faded from Kentigern's memory as he continued to devote himself to the worship of God. However, the folk of Glasgow would frequently speak of a strange man who would stand upon a rock that looked over the town. There he made a scene, shouting and making many prophecies, though never the same prophecy twice. The more contradictory predictions he made, the more the townsfolk learned to ignore him. One day, as Kentigern was conducting an early mass, the man took to his usual perch and started with his unsavoury shouting once more. Kentigern's patience, having finally reached its limit, gave way, and he bid one of his clerics to go to the man and silence him. When the cleric returned, tired from the climb, he told Kentigern that the old man would not be quiet, for he believed that he was due to die that very day and as a last request, he wanted to receive Mass so that his soul may be saved. He would not stop shouting until this request was granted. Kentigern was greatly amused by this, and addressed the congregation who had assembled before him. Is there any one of you who has not been misled by the words of this wild man? Does he not tell only lies? The congregation were silent, for they had all at some point been misled by the prophecies of the wild man.
Nonetheless, Kentigern, willing to give the man a chance, turned to his clerics and said, Go and ask the poor man by what death he will die today. So the cleric went and spoke to the wild man, who answered plainly, Today I shall be stoned to death. The cleric hurried back down the hill to Kentigern and told him all that the wild man had said. Then Kentigern told the cleric to go back to the man and ask him a second time how he would die. If this man is true to his word, then his prophecy shall be consistent. If not, then it will be clear that he is unworthy of receiving the sacrament. So the cleric once more climbed the wild man's rock, and when asked again, the wild man said, Today I will die when my body is pierced by a sharp stake. The cleric went back once more to Kentigern and said what he had heard. Kentigern turned to the congregation once again and cried, You see, this man is false, and thus I cannot grant his request. But the clerics in the congregation, whether through pity or through curiosity of the man, implored Kentigern to give him one last chance. Let him speak one last time, to see if he is able to prove himself rational, they begged. So Kentigern sent the cleric for the third time who asked the poor man one last time how he would perish. The wild man said, Today I shall sink to the bottom of the river and will drown. The cleric, having climbed that rock more times than he cared to count that day, grew frustrated with the wild man. Oh, you're a shameless fraud, he declared. St. Kentigern was right to deny your request for repentance. Then the wild man began to weep heavily. He wrung his hands and tore his hair and cried out, Oh, Lord Jesus, your believers reject me. How am I to do as you ask of me? Then he dropped to his knees before the cleric and begged for Kentigern himself to be brought before him, so he might hear his plea himself. Kentigern was reluctant to make the climb, but nonetheless he gathered his sacramental bread and wine and made the trek up the hill to meet the wild man. At first he did not see him, until in a flurry of hair he leapt from his rock, throwing himself to Kentigern's feet, praising God and telling his tale of woe, about how the Lord had advised him to seek communion before his death but that no one would believe him and let him take part. When he saw the man begging so humbly, Kentigern realised that this was the very same man he had encountered in the woods so long ago. This man, with his nonsense prophecies, was none other than Lelikin. Suddenly feeling ashamed of the way he had treated Lelikin, Kentigern began to weep, and he said, Lelikin, please stand and take communion with me today. And Lelikin wept too, for he was finally offered the blessing he desired. Lelikin followed Kentigern down from his rock, down the hill towards the rest of the congregation and the clerics. There, he gratefully washed himself and devoted himself to the Holy Trinity, before approaching the altar and partaking in the sacrament. Overcome with the power of the moment, Lelikin raised his palms to the sky and his voice boomed out for all to hear. Lord, if my life ends today, I foretell our king, the most noble of men, will follow me into oblivion. On hearing this, Kentigern frowned, and the clerics muttered between themselves. Hadn't Lelikin sworn himself to God and forsaken his life of prophecy? How could he go back to his old ways, even after the kindness they had showed him? Kentigern only sighed and waved a hand at the wild man, bidding him to go in peace. At that, Lelikin took off rushing back into the forest like a wild animal. The rest of the day passed without event, until that evening when a traveller brought word to town of an unfortunate event not too far away. The traveller related how, as he made his way to Glasgow, he spied a naked hairy man beaten to death by the men of King Meldred, and because of this beating took a fall over a steep bank of the River Tweed, 
where he landed on a stake in the water. The stake pierced the poor man's body and his head dropped into the shallow water where he at last drowned. When word reached Ken to Garen and his clerics, they realised that it had all come to pass just as Lelikin had predicted, and they remembered the wild man's final prophecy. The day Lelikin passed from this life, their king would be close behind. Ah, <laughs> oh, but I want to know if the king dies! I want to know if the king dies. <laughs> I like how he ended up being right in the end that he did die in all three ways, but also like that as a very bittersweet victory. Yeah. <laughs> like I told you I was going to die in all three ways, I'd, I'd, but he did die. So like... Yeah. But if you could tell that you're going to die, surely you would just avoid scenarios where any of those things could happen. Ah, but maybe he did. Maybe that's what caused it. Maybe he tried to avoid the scenarios. Because in always, when it's TV shows or films where they prophesize the future and they try to avoid it, Inevitably, how they avoid it is the thing that results in them actually dying that way. It very much has that vibe. Like, the fact that they were like, you can't die in all three ways, and then he proceeds to die in all three ways. Although, to be fair, the way that he died was actually technically just the drowning. Well, but the way he read the prophecies, though, was kind of like the the drowning was the penultimate thing. Mm, That's what it all led to. So. Yeah. I like our kind of what would you call them? Fortune tellers? Professors? Seers? Seers, maybe. Oracles. Oracles. We've got a few of them in Scottish mythology. Like, we've got the Thomas the Rhymer. We've got Scottish Merlin. We've got, um, what's the name of the dude? Uh, Brahan Seer. Brahan Seer as well. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, I just really enjoy the, because um, there's obviously quite a few links to King Arthur in Scotland, because it's a story that's very much like tied to Wales and Cornwall, but we've got um. Please be silent, hamster. The hamster has awoken. <laughs> she is Aww. running. This is a problem we have a lot when it gets to like, kind of normally any time between six o'clock and eight o'clock she'll start running. She's quite late today actually. She just starts running and will run for like two hours, just non-stop. And Damn. Becca so has stole her wheel, so she's in a huff now. <laughs> I've taken her wheel away so she can't run. Ha ha ha. What I was going to say was that there was... There's so many links to King Arthur in Scotland. You've got um, the King's Cross at Stirling Castle. There's the um, this whole story of Venora, who was meant to be Guinevere. And then there's this, which I think is so... It's such a good link, because um, that... Merthyn character is linked through with the connection to the Caledonian Forest. So it's it's quite concrete. Especially because the Caledonian Forest when it was kind of in its prime was such a large expanse of forest. It would have been really dark and really vast and you can really imagine someone going in there and just losing their mind. The Guinevere one. The Scottish one of that. Did she get ripped apart by dogs in that one? Yeah. Yeah. Like, in English version, Arthur gets killed by Mordred. In Scottish version, everybody dies. <laughs> in gruesome ways. Oh, Merlin yeah. in three different ways. Merlin... Guinevere ripped apart by dogs. How does Scottish Arthur die, do you know? I don't know, actually. I don't know. I would need to do some research uh, into that. Um, Probably the same way. It's quite consistent with Arthur. Well, it's usually dies in battle. Dies in battle. Um, but like, you know, traditional Marilyn 
um, gets turned into a rock or yeah. locked in a cave or turned into a tree. Quite poetic, nice things. But then you come up here and Lelican's pierced and stoned and drowned. <laughs> One death is not good enough. Well, you know, I have heard if you've been, if you are stoned, then you do have a higher likelihood of tripping and piercing and drowning. <laughs> so. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every single week with new folklore content from stories to analysis. So stay tuned. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales. Telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you would like to find out more about our charity, visit FolkloreScotland.com. And if you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at FolkloreScotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a link to a written version of this week's story in the show notes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.